0: You find yourself needing to learn more about D and D. What do you do? I cast pod. Welcome to I Cast Pod, a and D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things dungeon-esque and dragony. In this, our first bonus episode, we're talking about dragons. Dragons are ubiquitous across human culture, and no one really seems to know why. Studies of vervet monkeys show that they have an innate fear of lions, eagles and snakes. Add those together in the right ways and you could end up with something that looks like a dragon, so perhaps humanity's obsession with the creatures is in part evolutionary. Or perhaps the tales sprang from earlier times when we unearthed the fossilised remains of dinosaurs without the knowledge we have about them now. Those huge lizards seem primed for tales about gigantic flying beasts with preternatural powers such as bringing rains or breathing fire. They permeate even into today's pop culture too with The Hobbit and Game of Thrones both displaying impressive versions. In antiquity, they were featured in Chinese, Greek and Maori cultures, amongst others. The Babylonians had a serpent deity monster called Tiamat, a name which may be familiar to you, or will be, by the end of this episode. In the 1970s, the creatures made their way into a game that evolved from tabletop war games into something more fantasy-based, which provided an ideal home for these reptilian monstrosities. So listen on, intrepid adventurer. But beware, for here be dragons. You down with OG D&D? Yeah, you know me. Originally, there were six types of dragons in D&D. Black, white, blue, green, red and golden. Dragons took up pages 11 to 14 of the Monsters and Treasures booklet for original D&D. Considering that most monsters at the time warranted only a paragraph or two, it showed how important dragons were to the game. They are in the title, after all. In their original incarnation, dragons looked quite similar to their later and current versions. They already had set alignments, golden dragons were lawful while chromatic dragons were chaotic, and breath weapons that were different for each colour. Acid for black, cold for white, Chlorine gas for the greens, lightning for blues, fire for reds, and either fire or gas for the goldens. They also each inhabited unique terrains and represented different challenges for players of certain levels. Levels 5 to 7 would battle white dragons, 9 to 11 would face reds, and 10 to 12 could fight golden dragons. They could also appear in different age groups, which defined their hit points and breath weapon damage. One major difference with od dragons was their vulnerability and resistance to certain elements. For example, blue dragons were vulnerable to fire, but resistant to lightning and water. They also differed from most monsters, which were supplied only with combat stats, whereas dragons had percentages listed of like how likely they might be to talk with adventurers, or be sleeping, possibly inspired by the activities of the dragon Smaug in Tolkien's The Hobbit. Rules were even included for those attempting to subdue a dragon, or even trying to sell one. Supplement 1, Greyhawk, included four more metallic dragons. Brass, Bronze, Copper and Silver, bringing the total to ten. In the Greyhawk setting, metallic dragons could be lawful or neutral. Later, other dragons would fill the neutral alignment and the metallics would remain lawful only. Greyhawk also brought with it the dragon gods Tiamat and Bahamut, albeit without their names, who still feature in 5th edition in The Horde of the Dragon Queen and The Rise of Tiamat. The dragons gained increased power in advanced d and including an ability to induce fear in weaker enemies. The magazine that bears their name. In 1980, d and saw some new additions to dragons, first with Gem Dragons in Dragon Magazine issue 37 by Arthur W. Collins. He added five new neutral dragons, Amethyst, Crystal, Emerald, Sapphire and Topaz, each with their own territories and breath weapons as before. Then Len Lakovka in Dragon Magazine issue 38 introduced brown, orange and yellow dragons. Where previously chromatic dragons had been chaotically aligned and metallics being lawful, These three were evil. Dragon issue 62 saw the Good Steel Dragon and Evil Grey Dragon make their first appearance in 1982. and issue 65, had Richard Alan Lloyd continue the chromatic spectrum with his own yellow, orange and purple dragons in September of 1982. The official material included new dragons too, with six Oriental dragons being included in the Fiend folio in 1981 and the Monster Manual 2 of 1983, which expanded the roster with Cloud Dragons, Fairy Dragons, Mist and Shadow variants. Basic D&D showed off its own gemstone versions in the D&D Masters rules in 1985, categorising Amber, Crystal, Jade, Onyx, Ruby and Sapphire Dragons, which covered a range of alignments and bore little relation to Collins' Neutral Gem Dragons. Then, in 84, came Dragonlance by Tracy Hickman, a trilogy of dragon-heavy adventure modules to address the fact that although dragons were included in every monster manual, there were no adventures that featured them. There were adventures about giants, drow, elemental evil, and even lizard men, but the best-known monster in the game had none. Dragonlance grew into a story of epic proportions, eventually spanning 12 adventures, one for each type of dragon plus Bahamut and Tiamat. These adventures saw the dragons appearing more as characters than just monsters, and they formed the main part of the plots, with the dragon armies marching across Kryn and taking over vast territories. Dragon Magazine continued to focus in on dragons beginning with episode 50, the 5th Anniversary issue, which boasted a special dragon section, which included an article by Greg Wren called Self-Defense for Dragons which posited that dragons needed to be tougher in-game, seeing as how they were continually fending off well-kitted out parties of adventurers. It was partly due to this article that dragons picked up extra attacks and some sneaky tricks. From then on, it became tradition for the anniversary issues to include some articles about dragons, which makes sense really being the game's most notorious antagonists. Occasionally this meant the introduction of new types, including... In issue 170 in 1991, ferrous metal dragons of chrome, cobalt, iron, nickel and tungsten. Usually though, it involved rules variations like dragon clerics or another attempt to improve dragon's damage output. The final draconic issue 356 in June 2007 reworked the Ferris dragons and detailed many of the most famous dragons from D&D's history. Over these anniversary issues, much unofficial lore was added to dragons, making them the most detailed monsters in the game, including Ed Greenwood, creator of the Forgotten Realms and Elminster, who wrote out some 20-some unique draconic personalities in his common column, Worms of the North, between issues 230 to 259. To be or not to be. After AD&D was reworked in a second edition, dragons appeared once more in the Monstrous Compendium Volume 1. This sourcebook revisited dragons thoroughly, mainly by powering them up. TSR announced, They're back, and more dangerous than ever, in Dragon 146. Dragons in 2E were given new attacks like Wing Buffet and Snatch, and received more hit dice. The White Dragon, which had previously had access to 5-7 to hit dice, now found 11 available. The red dragon went from 9 to 11 to 15. Maximum HP was also bumped up for older dragons and generally they were more dangerous in 2e. During 2e, TSR released over 25 monstrous compendiums which included lots of new dragons including new chromatics, gem and gemstone, metallics, neutrals and oriental dragons. There were also unique one-offs such as the astral, radiant, Planar Adamantine, Cloud, the Steel Dragon of Greyhawk, and the frankly incredible Ware Dragon, which I personally want to know more about. Despite this, the main categories remained largely unchanged since 1974. In 1990, the Draconomicon was released as part of 2E, which is not only a great name, but it was also the first Draconic sourcebook, which, although focused on the Forgotten Realms, contained lots of info for dragons of any land, and included new dragons into the bargain, bringing mercury, steel, and yellow into canon. Ed Greenwood also brought us another incredible piece of content in the form of the Dracolich, an undead variant that originated in Dragon Magazine 110, and featured in the novel Spellfire 1987, but really took off in the 2E era, when they became the focus of the second draconic sourcebook, Cult of the Dragon, in 1998. Lastly, Tui managed to squeeze in the Council of Worms expansions in 1994 and 1999, which was a setting that players could take on the roles of Dragonkind themselves. Close Encounters of the Third Edition Kind. Third Edition again reworked many of the Draconic groups without expanding them. So we see the familiar chromatics, metallics, gems, and orientals. The biggest overall change was that 3E used age differently. Where before age had modified HP, now it was used to broadly distinguish a species. A dragon could now be anywhere from a 4HD Wormling to a 37HD Great Worm. Draconic attacks also became more dangerous as part of an overall power boost for monsters in general. Dragons also cast spells more frequently in 3e, and older dragons with these new abilities became more like the lethal creatures of legend. 3e did include some new variants in Monsters of Faerun in 2001, albeit realm specific, and even more powerful epic level dragons in the Epic Level Handbook of 2002, as well as planar dragons in Draconomicon, the Book of Dragons, in 2003. The latter tome was another in-depth look at these creatures, featuring information on draconic psychology, physiology, feats and more. It also included the lesser cousins of dragons, drakes and worms. 3E also saw two more source books, both in 2006, Dragons of Faerun and Races of the Dragon, with the latter book introducing players and DMs alike to a new humanoid race of draconic descent, the Dragonborn. May the 4th edition be with you. Dragonborn became one of the core races in 4E, but dragons themselves became more important in the game in general. 4E expanded on 3E's idea of younger dragons being able to be faced by lower level parties, so that more players could experience the thrill of a dragon battle, rather than having to wait until high levels to slug it out with one. The 4th edition monster manual continued the work of 3E, using age as a differentiator for level and challenge. A young white dragon was a level 3 monster, whereas an ancient white dragon was a level 24 encounter. This meant that weaker young dragons could be used in adventures for low level players. The free RPG day adventure, Treasure of Talon Pass from 2008, has a black dragon encounter as its final boss. Even though the adventure was set for players of 2nd or 3rd level, which would previously have been unthinkable. Other changes were more balancing for stats, mainly to make dragons more thematic, in line with other overall 4e changes, so white dragons might do cold damage with a claw attack rather than just with their breath weapon, and dragons generally got more effective fear effects, and their breath weapons recharged in new ways. The 4th edition monster manual expanded the metallic dragons with Mithril and Aurium, joining the pantheon of brass, bronze, cobalt, mercury and steel metallics, and official brown, grey and purple dragons into the chromatics. Lastly, the new category of catastrophic dragons appeared in Monster Manual 3 in 2010, who commanded the destructive powers of earthquakes, blizzards and volcanoes. State of Play now a decidedly core part of the game, as they should be, dragons are featured heavily in 5e, with the Tyranny of Dragons storyline, where the Cult of the Dragon seeks to free Tiamat, the Queen of Evil Chromatic Dragons, from the Nine Hells. Also, the new Essentials Kit box set is called the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, and sees beginning adventurers through to level 6 or so, eventually facing off against a young white dragon called Cryovane. Who has taken up roost in the mountains surrounding Fandolin, displacing various creatures who then appear in and around the area unexpectedly. 5E's monster manual lists among its denizens the terrifying undead Dracolich. Shadow Dragons who were true dragons that were either born in the Shadow Fell or else transformed by years spent in the plain of Shadow. Chromatics, black, blue, green, red, and white, metallics, Brass, bronze, copper, gold, and silver, as well as the turtle dragon. It continues the subdivision of dragons by age, listing wormling as zero to five years, young as six to a hundred, adult a hundred and one to eight hundred years, and ancient eight hundred and year, one years plus as categories. True dragons fall into the broad categories of the feared, evil and selfish chromatics and the respected noble and good metallic dragons. True dragons' ideals and personal motivations may vary wildly, but all covet wealth to the point of avarice, amassing treasure and hoarding coins, gems and magical items in lairs, which in turn attracts intrepid adventurers, making the dragons reticent to leave their pile for long, generally only to patrol or feed. Adult and ancient dragons are known as some of the most powerful creatures around, in part due to their predatory cunning magical abilities, and natural weapons and armour. Conomy Chromatic Driven by selfish greed, Chromatics display the worst sides of draconic nature. They believe that the wealth of the world is theirs by right, and that might makes right. Being mighty creatures, they steal from others with complete disregard for commerce, they hoard for the sake of having it and build lairs to defend their spoils rather than for shelter. Most often these lairs are created in difficult to reach places, hidden entirely or else in dangerous areas to help deter all but the most brave, reckless or foolhardy plunderers. Their superiority complex makes them believe that they are the most worthy and powerful of all the mortal creatures and that they were born to rule tyrannically over all creation. Humanoid races are to the chromatics as livestock are to humans, creatures only worthy of subjugation, their only use being what is designated by their masters. Tiamat, the queen of evil dragons, rules over the chromatics, from her lair on Avernus, the first layer of hell. In 5e, Tiamat is a lesser god and can grant spells to followers and worshippers, though she hates to share power like all chromatics. She has five heads, each representing a different chromatic heritage, black, blue, green, red and white, and is huge, as one might expect from a lesser god. She hates Bahamut, the platinum dragon who is revered by the metallics, as well as Asmodius, who stripped her of the full rule of Avernus and prevents her power from growing further. Chromatic Types Black, the most evil and vile of the chromatics, Black dragons collect the treasures of fallen peoples. They hate seeing the weak prosper and live in swamps and the ruins of kingdoms. They hate and fear other dragons. Blue Vain and territorial, blues live in rocky coastlines, searing steppes and parched badlands. They lord over other creatures in their territory and any insinuation that the dragon is weak or inferior is dealt with swift and deadly force. They tend to fight protracted battles, often soaring out of reach or attacking from distance with lightning. They sometimes employ wizards, sages or bards and reward loyalty. Green. Tricksters by nature. Greens use misdirection, manipulation, intimidation, lying and every other trick in the book of treachery and cunning to get their way. They take particular pleasure in corrupting the innocent and good-hearted. They collect people that they have bent to their will as much as they collect actual treasure. They favour forested areas and swamps for territory. Red. Reds covet wealth more than any other type and are exceptionally vain. They prefer mountainous regions and high perches with which to survey their lands. Impulsive and rage filled, reds are vengeful and aggressive. They compete with other Reds for status, using lesser beings to bring them news and information, as well as fearful slaves, while they isolate themselves with their horde. White The least intelligent, smallest, and most bestial of the chromatics, they live in the cold places of the world, preferring frigid temperatures in places like tundra, tigers, or wind-whipped mountains. White dragons lack the cunning and tactical nature of other chromatics, but are also the best hunters, being most in touch with their bestial natures. Whites only eat frozen food, and often freeze corpses as trophies to gloat over. Despite their lack of intelligence, they have incredibly long memories, and their capacity for holding grudges is second to none. Whites avoid all other chromatics whenever possible. Metallics Uh are. Metallic dragons view themselves as a powerful race amongst others, rather than the apex of the chain. Although the metallics covet treasure, it is less driven by greed as by the chromatics, and more for curiosity and learning. They collect relics and items which reflect their personalities and interests. They may also collect dangerous magical items in order to shield others from their effects. If an item would serve the greater good, often a metallic dragon can be persuaded to part with it, provided they can make their claim and purpose clear and meaningful to the dragon. Metallic dragons gain abilities to transform into humanoids and other creatures, and some use this power to integrate themselves into other societies to learn more about their culture, including cuisine, ways of life, and to keep up with current events. Metallics have good memories, but often judge races based on their other interactions with other members of the same species. They can smell out members of a bloodline, so could be fooled by an unscrupulous descendant of a good person they met previously, or resent someone who was perfectly innocent if their forebears were miscreants. The Metallics are ruled over by Bahamut, the Platinum Dragon, who lives in the seven heavens of Mount Celestia. Bahamut likes to come to the material plane disguised as a human male peasant, usually accompanied by seven golden canaries, which are actually seven golden dragons also transformed. Bahamut rarely gets involved in mortal affairs directly, though he will make exemptions to thwart plans made by Tiamat and her cohorts. Bahamut is sometimes worshipped by good-aligned paladins and clerics due to his ideals of justice and protection. Like Tiamat, Bahamut is a lesser god in 5e and can grant divine spells. Metallic types. Brass. Brass dragons are the most social of the dragons, loving to engage in conversation. They are known for exchanging treasure for information of news or other useful information. They are even known to follow creatures that don't initially converse with them and have even used sleep gas to subdue more laconic beings, arousing to the dragon pinning them down or otherwise restraining them until its thirst for dialogue is quenched. They also love sunlight and hot dry climates. Bronze. Bronze dragons love the coastal areas of the world and correspondingly their diet consists mostly of fish and aquatic plants. They study other animals by taking on their forms sometimes appearing as gulls or dolphins to observe ships and their occupants or even take the form of a rat or other bird to observe up close and inspect the hold for interesting treasure which the dragon may barter with the captain for. Bronzes are also enamoured of warfare and often join armies that fight for justice or against tyranny. Copper. Copper dragons are known for their predilection for jokes, pranks and riddles. They appreciate good wit, a humorous story or a devious riddle and can become annoyed with creatures who don't laugh along with it or don't accept their pranks with good grace. Due to their natures, copper dragons are particularly enamoured with bards Housing one who might regale it with tales and song, appreciating this type of companion as much as any treasure. Although generally even tempered, they can become dangerous if they perceive their hoard to be threatened due to a miserly streak, and will often send adventurers seeking an item on a wild goose chase for their own amusement. Gold. Golds are the most powerful of the metallics, Bahamut aside, and are the most vehement opponents of the evil in all its guises. They eat pearls and gems but will accept gifts of consumable treasure with grace, provided the gift is not part of a bribe. They are respected for their fairness and wisdom, even amongst other metallics. But they are the most insular and staunch of the goodly dragons, rarely seeking out relationships with other dragons and having a grim aspect to their nature. As with the others, golds gain the ability to polymorph in their adulthood seeking out towns and cities disguised as a peddler to gain information, patronise local businesses or aid the good in secretive ways, sometimes befriending locals for periods of time and becoming a trusted companion. Silver The most friendly of the metallics, silvers help creatures in need with a cheerful disposition, believing that living a moral life means actively doing good deeds in the world while ensuring that nothing they do causes any unwarranted harm. They don't seek out evil proactively as golds or bronzes would but will fight evil creatures or those who harm the innocent as they come across them. Silver dragons have long-lasting friendships with other silvers as well as humanoids and spend long periods of time in humanoid form adopting kindly folks such as sages or wanderers with whom they form lasting bonds. They have a particular like for the smaller races of the world but also find the human lust for life fascinating. The Draculich. Even with their extensive lifespan, dragons do die. Like some humanoids, this prospect is not welcomed within some dragons, and so some older dragons undergo necromantic transformations to become undead draculiches. Younger dragons attempting the process would be destroyed. Only the most narcissistic dragons opt for this option, most likely blue or red dragons in life knowing that it will sever their connection not only to life, but also to other dragons as well as their gods. They gather a group of evil mages or cultists to perform blasphemous rites and harrowing rituals where they drink a volatile concoction which kills them. The fell group then snares the dragon's spirit, capturing it in a gemstone that functions in the same way as a lich's phylactery, animating the mortal remains. They then appear as either skeletal forms, or else like with humanoid liches, withered and sinewy cadaverous versions of themselves, eyes aglow within shadowed sockets, malevolent and vile. They spend their afterlives as tyrannical but hidden despots, driven to rule over all creation from the secrecy of their rotten lairs. Intelligent and nefariously fiendish, they construct and enact complex plans of fetid purpose. They attract foul servants bidden to the lustful call of greed and power. If the Draculich's physical form is destroyed, its spirit returns to the gem, provided they occupy the same plane. The Draculich then attempts to find or create the corpse of another dragon to possess. If the gem is not present on the same plane, the spirit passes into the afterlife. And that's it for this special bonus episode on dragons. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, a subscribe, review on iTunes, or just telling your D&D friends about the show goes a long way to helping and keeping it going and is always appreciated. Next week, we'll return with a normal episode featuring humans, fighters, outlanders, and more. Until then, may Taimura bless your (laughs) endeavours.